0: It's a pleasure to be back with you again. Uh, we'll continue in the book of Philippians. We haven't been there for some time when I've uh, spoken in the evenings, but continue in Philippians, and we'll be in chapter 2, verse 12. Uh, but by way of context, we'll read all the way from the beginning of the chapter. So Philippians chapter 2, and we'll read from verse 1 down to verse 18. Philippians chapter 2. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And our text for this evening. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us ask Christ's blessing upon the study of his word. Lord Jesus, we pray now that as we come to this passage, that our minds would be lifted up, that our hearts would be warmed, and that our hands would be prepared that that which enters in through our minds and hearts would transform our lives by your Holy Spirit being at work. Lord, it can happen no other way. We cannot stir these things up ourselves, but pray that you, O God, would be at work, we ask. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to imagine that you are at home, and whoever is at home with you brings out two options and they say to you you can have four desserts either strawberry pie or ice cream and you think to yourself why are you making me choose those two things so obviously go together and are in fact improving one another that you're forcing me to make a false choice children that's what's called a false dilemma where you're forced to choose between two things that aren't the only two options There's a third option, a better option, to have pie with ice cream, strawberry pie a la mode. And that can be something of what it's like when we come to a study of theology, is that people think to themselves oftentimes that you can either have theology on the one hand or you can have practical advice on the other. They fail to see that actually those two things, theology and practice, are improved when they are closely wedded together. In fact, people throughout church history have argued that you're not actually doing true theology if it does not lead to worship. Likewise, you're not really worshiping God if you don't begin with true and biblical theology. And so rather than seeking to divorce these two things or to divide them, we ought to strive to hold them together always. Just like pie is made better with ice cream and ice cream made better with pie, theology that leads us to worship is the only theology worth having and worship must be built on the bedrock of theology that is why we read such a long portion of scripture this evening because our passage philippians 2 verse 12 cannot be separated from all that has come before when paul says in philippians 2:12 therefore he is assuming that we understand what has come immediately preceding chapter 2 verses 1 through 11 give us perhaps the clearest picture in all of Scripture of the glory of the person and work of Jesus. We see there the pre-existing glory of the Son. We see His humiliation and His work on our behalf. And we see His exaltation to the right hand of God the Father. For us to miss that when we come to the therefore in verse 12 will get us in all sorts of trouble This is Paul's pattern often in his letters. He begins with a foundation of doctrine like in the book of Ephesians and then moves in chapter 4 of that letter into the practical living. Doctrine moves to devotion and to doxology. Chapter 4 of Ephesians says, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. How do you know what calling you've been called if you haven't read the first three chapters? And so there is this inseparable link between doctrine and devotion, or doctrine and discipleship, or what we believe and how we behave. And so when we come to a passage like our passage this evening, which gives us a series of commands, we must remember that these commands do not fall from the sky. We must remember that these commands do not force us to leave behind the gospel foundation, but are built upon that very bedrock. So, Philippians 2, verses 5-11 to give us that picture of the glory of Christ. And we ask the question then, Paul, how are we to respond to the glory of Christ? How are we to respond? Believe it or not... You and I need Christ's guidance to respond to Christ's glory. We need Christ's guidance to respond to his glory. Left to ourselves, we wouldn't really know what to do. And so Paul gives us three responses tied to this glorious and wonderful Savior that he's just praised and exalted. So he says three things. He says, respond to Christ's glory, first, with obedience, second, with contentment, and third, with worship. We need Christ's guidance to respond to Christ's glory. And he, Paul, tells us how we ought to do that. So first, look with me at verse 12. Respond to the glory of Christ with obedience. Verse 12 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Notice first that the kind of obedience in view here is a warm and pastoral obedience. How does Paul start? He says, therefore, what? Therefore, my beloved. My beloved. Paul is writing to Christians. And I assume that for the most part, I tonight am preaching to Christians. I would never assume that there are are no unbelievers here, but I would assume that I am preaching to largely Christian Audience, And so I I would want, just as Paul would want this message to be one of warm instruction, warm encouragements to obedience. He doesn't say to the Philippian church, okay, church, obey already. I'm frustrated with you. I'm upset with you. He says, my beloved, my beloved Philippian church, as you have always obeyed, continue onward. Paul has been warm throughout this letter, and going back to chapter 1, verse 6, he says this, and I am sure of this: that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's not as though for Paul, when he is commanding something or instructing something, that the end is really in doubt. Paul has said that this is what God is at work doing. And so when Paul gives them this therefore statement, he's not saying, "I'm going to encourage you to do something that God has somehow left you on your own to do. He is saying, Chapter 1, verse 6, I am sure of this, that God will work in this way. Therefore, beloved, this is how you ought to obey. The other thing that Paul says here, not only does he begin warmly, but he also begins selflessly. The Philippian church is not merely to obey Paul when Paul is there. But he says to them, as you have obeyed in my presence, but much more in my absence... In other words, Paul is saying, don't obey God merely when I am there looking over your shoulder. If you've ever done any kind of work with children or you're being a parent and you've gone into a room where where children are playing or working or doing any kind of those things and everybody stops when they see you enter the room, you know that something has been going on before you arrived. I'm a teacher and one of the things I can tell is that there are some students who work really well when I am sitting right beside them and some students who work well, even in my absence. Paul is saying, don't let your obedience be tied to my physical location near you. The other thing that he's saying by saying that is, don't rely on me for your sanctification. Have you ever thought to yourself, if only I was in such and such a church, my sanctification would be great. If only I had so-and-so as my pastor, maybe it's someone you listen to or benefit from on the internet, if only I had this person as my pastor, that would be exactly what I need. What Paul is saying is that Philippian church, you actually don't need me for your sanctification. God will use me like he will use your pastor and like he will use other people in your life. But he's saying, God is the one who is at work in you. Your sanctification is a work of God, first and foremost, not dependent upon any one particular person. We face this challenge too, don't we? So don't rely on any one person for your sanctification. Instead, see it as a work of God. And third, not only is Paul giving a warm and a selfless instruction, but he is also commanding the church to work out their salvation. Now, this phrase at first sounds weird to us, to work out your salvation. Why might that be? Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 gives us a really helpful grid for understanding the relationship between works and grace, the relationship between wages and a gift, and so that when we come to Philippians, we can wrongly import some of that language and get confused about what Paul is talking about. So let's read Romans 4.4, 4, and then we'll turn back to Philippians. In Romans 4.4, 4, it says this, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So how are we to understand Paul's instruction here to work out your salvation if we're saying here that we're to experience and receive as a gift rather than work for wages the key difference lies here we are not to work for our salvation we are to work out our salvation we cannot mistake that simple three-letter word exchange we are not working for salvation we are working out of our salvation Another way that the Bible puts this is the language of working and resting. We are not working in order to rest. We have been given rest, and from that rest, we then work. If someone were to ask you a question, they were to say, is the Christian life one of work or rest? Again, they're forcing you to choose between strawberry pie and ice cream. But it is absolutely crucial that we do not confuse those two or put them together unnecessarily. We must distinguish them, hold them together and say, my pie is not my ice cream and my ice cream is not my pie, but we do have both together. Right? Work is not rest and rest is not work, but they do go together. We do not work for our salvation, but we work from a place of salvation. We do not work for our salvation, but we work out our salvation. Sinclair Ferguson has a really helpful quote here, and he says, make sure that the influence and the implications of your salvation permeate or spread throughout the entirety of your life. There's this spreading effect that should take place that as a child of God, as one of the beloved, that because you are saved, that salvation begins to have its effect in increasing areas of your life. Picture that you are making some kind of icing for a cake. And you have this nice, soft, yellow buttercream. And what you do is you add a couple of drops of food coloring to it. Now, if you just mixed it maybe one time over or a couple times over, you would have these big, splotchy patches of color and then still remaining white buttercream. What Paul is saying here is that that work of salvation is going to spread and affect everything so that instead of having these splotchy marks, your entire life becomes known and marked by the work of God in it. That is the working out of salvation. Put another way, Paul says in just one chapter earlier, Chapter 1, verse 27, only let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That your manner of life would be worthy, not perfectly, but would begin to reflect the salvation we have received. We are to work out our salvation. Again, not for our salvation, but as a result of God's work. And then the next bit is also a bit that can be a bit confusing. It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. And we must remember that this is not a, a slavish fear. This is not a fear of judgment. But this is a dependence and humility before a God who remains the King of Heaven even as he is our father. Right? Think of, of your kind of attitude and service if you were working in a fast food restaurant or if you were waiting the table of the king of Great Britain. What, what kind of attitude would you have? You, you would behave differently in one arena versus the other. So we don't have a, a slavish fear as though we would be judged, but we do have a dependence, humility, honor, and respect, knowing that the one who we serve though He is our Father, is still almighty and all-powerful. And you might be saying to yourself, where does this ability, where does this desire even come from? And Paul points us to that source after he has gone through this. And he says in verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. How is it that you who once did not desire the things of God, now desire the things of God? It's because God is being at work. A helpful way to perhaps illustrate this is to look in the physical realm. In John chapter 5, you see a man who was born without the ability to walk. He was born lame. And Jesus in John chapter 5 heals this man so that he is now able to walk. And if you were to ask that man, how are you able to walk? There is no way he would say, well, I've been working really hard on my squats. I've been doing lunges every day. And now finally, after 40 years, I can now walk. We get that inherently when it's physical. We see that this man had legs that did not work. But beloved, you and I, we had hearts that did not work. Hearts that were idle factories. Hearts that did not love God. And if you say to yourself, why is it that today I love God and I used to not? It's because God is at work. It's not because you were better It's not because you worked really hard at it. It's because God was at work. Not just at work, but even at work to give you the will to work. All of this is a work of God. When we come to a passage like this, where we are instructed to pursue holiness, where we are instructed to work out these things, what we must remember is that even as we are called to do certain things, God is at the very same moment promising that He will accomplish these things. Right? When we come to a passage that says, Therefore, my beloved, walk in this way or work out in this way, we must remember that God has said, I will also bring these things to pass. That the very thing that is our duty is also God's promise. When God says, again, Philippians 1, verse 6, I will complete the good work that I started. He then calls us to participate and walk in that same path. So first, and this is our longest point, we won't spend the same time on each. Respond with obedience, but then, second, respond with contentment. This answers the question, what kind of obedience is in view here? Is it a a surface-level, grin-and-bear-it kind of obedience? Well, no, of course not. Paul says, afterwards, do all things, verse 14, without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. If you read your Old Testament, you'll know that one of the defining marks of the people of God there is that they were grumblers. The people grumbled in the desert against Moses. The people grumbled when God did not give them what they thought they should have. The people said, we want to be back in Egypt, sitting by the meat pots. God, how can you bring us out here in the desert to die? And Paul says now to the Philippian church, do all these things without grumbling or disputing. Do not let yourselves be known as a grumbling church. Friends, if we're honest... When we read those passages of the Old Testament, especially we think to ourselves, what a great Israelite I would have made. I know I wouldn't have grumbled, but we're grumblers by nature, aren't we? I know I was. I know I was when I was a child and I would grumble against my parents. I was pretty good at grumbling quietly because I thought to myself, I really want my parents still to like me and I want the perception of obedience to be there, but I grumbled in my heart. I was frustrated and all those things and that's what we do towards God too, isn't it? We grumble. We complain. We think we've been hard done by. When when God says, because of my great love, because I have saved you now, walk in this way, we grumble. Paul says here that your living as those without grumbling, as your life as a content person, your life responding in contentment, what will that be like? It will be like lights shining against the backdrop of a dark world one of the ways that paul encourages us to do this is he says your contentment your contentment is going to be a witness to the watching world and you might be saying to yourself but isn't it much harder to be a christian now than it was then first of all i don't think that's true i don't think it would have been harder to be a christian now than it was then but but even if it was even if it was harder to be faithful as a christian now than it was for the philippians What Paul is saying is that when the world, that crooked and twisted generation, verse 15, when that world is darker and darker, that does not obstruct the lights that are shining. It gives more distinction and visibility to them. We live in an age which is perhaps at the very same time the best and the worst for stargazing. We have technology never previously seen when it comes to seeing things which are so far away. And yet each one of us lives with a kind of light pollution that prevents all good stargazing from really taking place unless we have that technology. So what Paul is saying here is that when that crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine, the darker that looks, your light will be all the more visible when you live as people who are content. So that's the first result. When you are content, you shine bright as a witness to the work of Christ. And the second result is, Paul says here, that when you hold fast to the word of life, in the day of Christ, I might be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And so what Paul is saying is that you're shining, you're living contentedly. What that is doing is not only witnessing to the world, but it is also giving me encouragement, giving me hope that I am not working or laboring in vain. Again, something we've talked about before in the book of Philippians is that Paul is very willing to say, obey for my sake. Not entirely, not only, but Paul is saying, be encouraged by me. Know me as your former pastor. Know me as your former church planter. And if that gives you some measure of encouragement to live in this way, Rely on that. Know that your holiness encourages me and me to you. So respond to Christ's glory with obedience. Respond with contentment. And third and finally, respond with worship. Paul says in verse 17, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul mentions a sacrificial worship, a worship used, uh, sorry, based on imagery in the temple here, that the drink offering would be poured out upon the sacrifice of the Philippians' faith. It's as though Paul is saying that, that my life, my life is the, the cherry on the top of the cake that is your offering. Your offering is going to be crowned by my life and my work. We're working at this together in this way. Another way of thinking about it is that, that Paul is saying that because of Christ's atoning sacrifice, because he has paid for all your sins, you now are able to offer an offering of thanksgiving, an offering of praise. In light of his sacrifice, we then offer back that sacrifices of thanksgiving. But this is also joyful worship. He concludes by saying that he rejoices with all of the Philippians Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. We rejoice when given the opportunity to sacrifice. We rejoice when given the opportunity to suffer, knowing that these are the things which our loving Lord has called us to endure. So we respond with obedience, with contentment, and with worship. Now you might be saying to yourself at this point, Josh, I often don't respond with obedience. I often don't respond contentedly. And my worship is lacking. What then? What then do I do when I have failed to respond as I ought? Go back to verse 5. Go back to verse 5 and see Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not grasp equality with God a thing to be grasped. Go back to Jesus, whose obedience was perfect. Go back to Jesus who never once grumbled or complained. Go back to Jesus who said that it was His food to do the will of His Father, who never failed to worship, who never failed where you and I so frequently do. Go back to Jesus who lived perfectly, died sacrificially, and rose triumphantly for you and for me. And if you know today that you are not a believer, You know today that you do not have these three things in your life at all and you're saying to yourself, how am I to respond? The answer is not responding by doing these three things and saying one plus one plus one equals three. I'm going to obey. I'm going to be content and I'm going to worship. Therefore, I will know Christ. No. You must first receive Him. You must first trust Him. You must first enter that place of rest before you can ever begin to work. Again, what we read at the beginning, we must not think to ourselves, we can work our way into salvation. If you are saying to yourself today, I am not sure if I am in verse 12, therefore, my beloved, come to Christ now. Do not delay. Come to Him and find Him to be that perfect Savior that we all need. And only then, only then, begin to work out your salvation. Will you pray with me? Our God and our Father, we thank You that You have done all that is necessary to save us. We thank You too, Lord, that You do not leave us to live the rest of our lives hopeless, instructionless, and unable to do anything that is pleasing in Your sight. But by another act of grace, You accept our good works, imperfect though they are, not in order to make us right before You, but because they are done in Christ. We. Thank you that you invite us to follow after you. Lord, may each one here know what it means to work out that great salvation, to follow after, and to be encouraged in that walk with us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.